This episode of the Brewery Pro Podcast is presented by HPA. HPA's team of experts in breeding, growing, harvesting, and processing hops is dedicated to delivering impact in your beer year after year. This episode of Brewer's Perspective looks at how sensory training can impact the quality of your beer. If you would like to learn how HPA is contributing to a sustainable future of quality beer, you can listen to Owen Johnston chat with HPA's agronomic services team on the topic of quality assurance in hop production. This conversation was part of HPA's 2021 harvest and is a valuable insight into how HPA ensures that only the highest quality hops reach the hands of brewers. There's a link to that episode in the show notes. I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and this week on Brewers Perspective, Marcus and Anthony discuss how breweries can implement sensory training programs to approve on their beer. Our guest is Tina Panutsis, Senior Manager of Beer Knowledge at Carlton and United Breweries. With three decades in the brewing industry, in roles across quality, education, brewing innovation and sensory and consumer science, Tina has specialised in understanding the role of sensory and consumer preference through various research projects in support of beverage innovation and beer engagement. In this fascinating chat, we discuss the importance of sensory training and how breweries can incorporate it within their teams. Tina also explains the do's and don'ts of entering beer in competitions and how brewers can improve upon their entries. Tina Panutis, welcome to Brewers Perspective. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure because we have had you on Beer as a Conversation before and you were one of our mystery voices at the start of Brewers Perspective. I don't know whether you've clued to that. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> and I cringe every time I hear it. <laughs> oh, God, you could, must imagine how I feel every time uh, I listen back to a podcast then. Um, this uh, podcast, we're going to dig a little bit more into uh, sensory uh, and a, a whole lot of aspects of sensory that brewers need to be aware of. So I, I, I guess if we can start at the beginning, Beginning, give us a little bit of background to yourself and how you came to, uh, you know, be working for CUB in, in in your current role. Sure, God, now we've got to trace back thirty odd years, <laughs> Matt. This is when I always feel a little old and think, oh my God, have I been that ar- around that long? This is where your expertise shines. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thanks. Yeah, no, I started back in uh, with CUB in the Quality Assurance Lab as a, a chemist, a QA chemist, and thought I'd give myself two years in this industry and that sort of soon changed and, you know, 28 years later I'm still there. Um, But I think my interest and what I currently do probably stemmed from the opportunity to be able to formalise a sensory training program or sensory education program within CUB. We had been doing it for eons beforehand, but it was a little bit more ad hoc. So to really develop the the need and the opportunity and the consistency with how our brewers were perceiving beer and ultimately, you know, it was probably fault finding and looking at, you know, issues and stuff like that at the time, um, I got into developing the sensory education program, wrote it up, um, delivered it across all of our um, breweries across the, the country at the time and then sort of moved into a number of different beer education, both technical and, and from a commercial side of things, building um, our internal capability and interest and knowledge about beer um, and just sort of progressing the, the sensory component um, that sort of went through different waves and always had an interest in it and a, an involvement in it, um, but moved into different roles within, you know, L&D, um, education, all sorts of different stuff. I've actually now in a, a role within the trade marketing team, heading up beer knowledge for the commercial biz, part of the business. 
So I've sort of moved out of um, sensory uh, for the last couple of years, but still have a, an input into it from a panelist point of view. Um, so yeah, still keeping in touch with that. But um, yeah, that's essentially probably me in a nutshell. <laughs> You've had a long and fantastic career in sensory, and I think that's that's one of the yeah you you've got to be one of the one of the best uh people to have on to talk about this topic i think tina <laughs> it's, you know what you don't know about it i'm sure is is very little so hey, thanks for coming on board no problem we're going to come at it from a bit of a, a craft brewers perspective i know my background's been commercial and so is yours but um from a craft brewers perspective and i guess you know what do you see as you know, a sensory program in a craft beer? What, what do you think it looks like? There are opportunities, obviously. Um, you know, the opportunities within a craft space is often limited by cost. And unfortunately, that's one of the, the inhibitors of really put, um, rolling out a, a consistent and an ongoing and a, and a great program. But um, it doesn't have to cost a lot. You know, I think there's, there's, there are a lot of ways in which um, brewers can can adapt and modify their training programs. I think essentially um, the first thing is is to get to make sure that you've got a group of people um, interested in actually taking part in a sensory program and get having commitment and building an expectation where they know the purpose of running a sensory program is ultimately the quality and the consistency of the products that are coming out of that brewery. So getting people on board is one thing and often that's if something falls apart, it's the commitment that people can't deliver or can't, you know, provide that usually sort of sees a, a something like a sensory program falling over. But the other thing too is to consider what the scope and what the purpose is. So from a craft brewery, is it to build the capability and the consistency of your products and make sure that you've got the people that are testing it and tasting it are well equipped to understand things like, you know, faults or profile or, um, you know, avoid things like cellar palate and, you know, not tasting at the right time. So your interpretation one day is different to your interpretation the other day and having the confidence to be able to articulate um, beers and flavours and styles and even identify faults. So looking, you know, if you can get a, a decent group of people together and that's generally um, to put the effort into building a sensory program and spiking products or, you know, whatever it is, the, the purpose of doing it, um, putting the effort and the money into it, it's important to make sure that you've got the return on that is um, delivered by having the right amount of people to sort of support that. So if you're going to fork out money for a dosing or a spiking kit, um, there's no point in doing it with two people because that's a lot of money that goes down the drain, both in beer and cost of capsules. So really building um, a good sound pro, uh, program is important. So th there's a little bit of just with your language, it's, it's us and them or me and them in, in the sense that you're almost identifying one action party and they're engaging the rest of the group. Are you implying that you should set up like a craft beer manager or somebody should be the, the, the hero for this pretty early on? Spot on. You can't, unless you've got a group of people that, or, you know, one or two people, brewers, or a could be a brewer, could be an admin person, could be a salesperson, someone that can champion it and really gets behind it and understands the 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 scope and the purpose then definitely it is it's not a, so much an us and them but it's someone that drives it and you've really got to have that commitment to keep people 
um, accountable to sort of, you know, uh, having that consistency of uh, people rolling up. And often, I've often found in the past that, unfortunately, whether it's training and education or sitting in on a sensory panel or running a sensory panel, um, it does get deprioritised. And someone will go, oh, I'll do that later, or so-and-so will go and oh, they'll have a couple of people they can do the tasting, but it really does need someone to champion it and um, get everyone involved and get everyone um, accountable for their actions to it. You know, you hear about people incentivising um, attendance. Um, I, I sometimes think if, if you make people believe in something, then that's the incentive. Um, it sort of rubs me the wrong way to pace it for people to do something, you know, just because that's the only way you're going to get them. They're not committed then. So it, it really does. It is important to make sure that you've got um, someone championing it. Champion in it. I can't speak. You're right. <laughs> that, that's fine. So now, now we've got a champion or champions and they're running the show. What do we do? Scope was a word that you used a lot. How do we go about mm -hmm. defining scope? Are there any simple guidelines we can find somewhere or how does that happen? Um, there are. There's a, there's a lot of material out there um, through Brewers Association and um, different bodies that will provide, you know, an, an awareness or some guidelines. But essentially the scope that I often um, suggest is that why are you doing it? You know, what's your purpose in, in running a sensory panel? Is it to check your brands? Is it to check the quality of your products? Is it to build profiles of the brand so that you can understand that? Um, and that's a really important part of, part of it is to you, your core brands. You, every brewer should have an overall profile of those beers and um, that's got to be built by over a number of occasions um, where your panel that's been trained in identifying faults and also um, key at style attributes has been able to um, pull together a profile where they've assessed on intensity a list of attributes that then they can sort of create a radar map or any other sort of visual interpretation of that profile of a beer and then you can assess that um, so that you can make sure that there's no drift um, it's maintaining quality and it's as that your consumer your customer would it, would it, um, expect that beer to taste the other one is for innovation as well if you know that you know understanding having a, pan, a sensory panel where you can train them up in all sorts of different areas from faults to style guidelines or style attributes um, they're equipped as a measuring tool to be able to deliver um, an assessment on different styles and then be able to create uh, an opportunity where you look at if you're looking at a new style and you, you've got a, a you know sensory assessment of that um, style as well so the scope is really understanding why is it that you want to run a taste panel why is it that you want to build the capability within your brewery for people to assess beer there's obviously lots of good reasons to have a sensory program in your brewery and you've mentioned lots of whys there um you know, for for me i'm thinking you know a do meter and a co2 meter they're 20 20 grand uh there's there's a fair bit of equipment that guys are purchasing that mm -hmm. you know are giving you know are giving some analyses results but uh in the end the beer has got a you know, you're presenting a beer to a consumer and it needs to be true to type. They need to be able to pick it up off the shelf and say, yeah, that's the same as what it was last week or when I had it last. Um, to me, a sensory program is a fairly cheap way of, um, of making sure that you're, you're putting some systems and processes in place to, to try and ensure you have beer that's true to type. Now, um, 
I guess taking a little bit st- a step further back. I mean, I know we've made the assumption that you know we're sitting in a in a panel and it's everything's blind tasting, but uh, I know there's a fair few craft breweries out there that probably don't have that formalised approach where they're you know they're probably standing around the bar or standing around their tap room and they're having um, you know having a beer and they're discussing the beers and those types of things. How important is it to be blind tasting and really putting a a, a formal approach to to what you're doing around sensory? I think it's hugely important. Uh, pardon the joke, but I wouldn't have been in the industry for 30 years if it wasn't important. Um, uh, but generally, it is really important because you do get uh, different influences. If you haven't created the the structure of a taste panel or a sensory program, then you you're ultimately by uh, consciously or subconsciously you're often at risk of um, introducing people's bias into that tasting and their their preferences. Um, so even if it is blind, sometimes uh, a critical view of a particular beer whether it's your own or a competitor's, or it's you know something within the market that you're you're lining up against. Having a program is important because it really identifies strengths and um, gaps in your your assess your ability to assess. So even something as simple as you know looking at ten basic flavors, you know things like diacetyl and isoamyl and acetaldehyde oxidized paper. You know some of those key attributes that we find in a lot of beers as faults often. Um, having an understanding of where your strengths and weaknesses lie uh, is really important in being able to even have that informal assessment because you know what your capabilities are. So running a tasting panel, even if it's, say, as basic as once a month, where you get a kit, you get everyone involved, as many people as you can, and start to identify what your what you can, um, one, identify as a difference to recognize that difference and then build on that proficiency starts to build the confidence and the strength in your tasters to be able to look at something and assess a beer objectively. And that is, you know, what we demand of everyone that comes along onto a judging panel that they're doing it objectively. We all have our preferences and sometimes that can creep into you know, providing some feedback. And in, in the past, I've often sort of tried to minimise that and around the discussion around, you know, uh, influence the discussion around, don't tell me what, what you love about it, tell me what you what you pick up in it. Because it just depends. If I'm asking you for a, pre, in, if I've asked you to come along to a preference test, then obviously I want you to tell me what you love. Tina, one of the things that judges often discuss is some Brewers have a strength in some elements of tasting, but you're almost blind spots in others. Um, as we learn more about taste and you know the the mechanics of taste and learn about the genetic components, or you know, is there a limit to some things that we can develop in our taste buds, or you know, can you always get better across every element of our uh, you know sort of sensory skills? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good question because I know a lot of people, sometimes depending on how how much training or how much exposure they've had to it, are sometimes hesitant to sort of identify that they either, say, for example, on a, you know, a tasting environment where we're starting to roll out some training and people can't pick it up, but they're really not sure of 
what they're meant to be identifying, you you know that part of the training helps people, helps a panellist develop that um, understanding of where their um, strengths are and whether or not they're anosmic or blind to certain characteristics. So I'll, I'll pick out the obvious one, diacetyl. I know a number of different people that are blind to diacetyl and the detection of that um, is often... If, in a panel situation, when you get a couple of people that can pick up even at really low levels diacetyl in a beer, and then you see the strength in the panel come through when someone says, well, I know I can't pick it up, so I'll, I'll refer to you, Matt, for example, that you, you can pick it up and I know that there's, a, a, there's something there. So you're not, you're not focusing on one person's interpretation, but you're focusing on a number of people and being able to identify whether or not you can pick up a certain attribute in a beer is as strong as knowing that you can't pick it up. And part of that all comes down to, you know, having the exposure to a number of different flavours and working out how you can um, identify them. I know that a couple of brewers that I've come across in different panels um, and in their training are definitely blind to diacetyl, but there's a certain characteristic that they can identify of how it changes the profile of that beer. Let's just say, um, let's pull out Carlton Draft, for example, as one of the beers that we've often used to spike flavours in. Now, our, our panellists know the Carlton Draft profile inside out. So part of their training is to identify and, and recognise those attributes that make Carlton Draft Carlton Draft. Once it's spiked with diacetyl, even if any of the people that are on the panel know that they can't pick up diacetyl, know, they know how it can influence the profile of um, Carlton Draft. So they know that it's not, a, even though they can't pick up diacetyl in it, they know that it's not a per perfect Carlton Draft because diacetyl in the present, you know, when it's at certain levels can change the ester profile, can change the mouthfeel and so on. So that's as important. And that that's a panel that, you know, has gone through, you know, a, a year of basic tasting across the flavours, has had recognition training, has had pr proficiency in threshold determination and so on. So it's pretty hardcore training but um yeah definitely Sorry, yeah. you can get people um identifying and not identifying flavors but they work out how that can influence the profile of the beer when you say you uh dose you know um carlton for example um carlton draft and so you've got an awareness of it it's a, it's a lighter flavored beer so many craft brewers are trying to do sensory on beers that have a lot of confounding flavors and elements that are a little bit harder do you recommend that Brewers learn their um, sensory against a lighter flavoured beer, but still dose, you know, their their own beers. Or what, how do you deal with stronger flavours um, in in beer and and, and the, the the sensory issues? Really, really good point because I think in the past. Um, Sensory training's always been done on one profile of a beer, and if you had to, if I had to break it up into, this is one of the things about looking at a strategy or a, or a um, process of which or, or reasons why you're running a training, a sensory training program. The first thing is that you've got to make sure that whoever is on your panel um, can identify that there's a difference between beer A and beer B. Now, whatever that beer is, the less complex it is, the better, because that's what your starting point is. So you dose X flavours into a beer and you want to make sure that the medium 
of, or the beer medium isn't going to influence that flavour too much. So it's not going to mask it or anything like that. So people identify, get practice in identifying beer A, not spike, is different to beer B. The next stage is recognising that difference. So what is it that makes that beer different, the spiked one different? And in a beer like um, that's quite neutral, hasn't got a lot of hop character or isn't really complex, it's easier to do that. So what you're doing is you're building your panellists' capability and confidence in identifying that flavour. The next step is identifying how low they can go in, in recognising that flavour. So that's a, a threshold. So you might start at three times threshold, peel it back to half of that and then peel it back to half again by cutting it back, for example. And you can be, it can be as crude as that or it can be as measured if you're going down the path of understanding what people's thresholds are. So once you've done it in a beer that's not too complex, then you introduce another beer. So you know you're, we'll go back to dice. Oh, you know that your panel or the people that you're testing or part of the sensory program can identify diacetyl and let's just use Carlton Draft again. They can identify in Carlton Draft and at different levels. Then you move into another beer that has a bit more complexity. The hop profile is a little bit higher, the bitterness is stronger, the alcohol or whatever it is, you start to look at different styles and introduce that same flavour and then try um, and, and determine what the differences are between a light lager to a, a hoppy Highlight, for example. So then you start to sort of build that repertoire of understanding the flavour in a presence of different beers. And it is really important. But the starting point does have to, I often think that the starting point does have to be with a beer that's um, not too complex. So what you're doing is you're highlighting the, the spike flavour um, and then looking at how that influences. And that's all part of that education process and locking in that knowledge of the flavour, how it contributes. You know, one flavour will contribute a different characteristic based on the malt profile or the hop profile or the alcohol. So understanding that you're not only um, learning about the flavour itself, but the impact of the process in your ingredients and, and everything else that's wrapped up with it and how it in, is influenced by a certain flavour. This um, sounds like a huge amount of information to to collect there's obviously the report card or the profiling that you're doing on each of the panel and then the accumulation cross-checking it yep. against the results it, it seems quite overwhelming to me and I've been doing this stuff for a while how I, I'm still struggling with that idea of how you get over the hump and also countering that with the you know the craft beer vision of it's Friday drinks and somebody walks out with a jug spike with diacetyl and thinks that's flavor tasting yeah <laughs> how do you just how do you how do you manage all of that information you're already scared, you know, you spent a thousand bucks on the tasting kit. You've, you're wasting two hours, four hours, not wasting, but utilizing two to four hours a week of a whole bunch of people's time. How do you make that information count? How do you, how, how do you format it? How do you find that fits together best when you don't have somebody like yourself running the, the program? You, you can put it into as something as easy as an Excel spreadsheet and do a, an assessment of how, you know, people are faring one week to another or one month to another. And ideally, you'd, you'd want to run something like this, even if it's with three flavours for half an hour, capture that data and see everyone's progress, whether they got it right or wrong. It can be as simple as just pulling together the information on the Excel spreadsheet. You've got different programs that will do a statistical analysis of how, you know, people's uh, alignment. I mean, doing a panel calibration, there are programs out there too that can interpret the data statistically to see if you're aligned 
how aligned you are with within your panel and the average assessment. But you can capture it as easily as, you know, one column's got the list of names, the other one's got the flavour, whether they got it right or wrong, and, and then you move on to, you know, and, and that's the bare basics that you really do need to start to build that confidence in the credibility of your panel too. So once they see that they're getting it right or wrong, you know, if you, if you get it right three times, for example, well, you're on the way of really recognising it, and then you'd move on to doing it in a different beer. So that forms another column and that, you know, you've got the same three uh, flavours and you look at those flavours in a different form, get it right, wrong, move on to the next one. It can be really detailed, but it can be sim as simple as you got it right or wrong. And, I, you know, as a starting point, once you start to build that database of uh, your panel, uh, it can get as complex as you want it to be. There's a number of different programs and you can align up with, um, say, for example, some of the, the uh, dosing kits. So Roxa has their taste of validation scheme where they, you know, you just punch in the numbers. They do the algorithms in the background. They send you back your results of how calibrated your panel is according to your own, but also globally, you know, like with other contributors in there too, which is a powerful tool. I've had the pleasure of using DraftLab before. Um, yep. and that was yep. that was very helpful for a small team obviously you put the yep. money down every every week every month to pay for it but the data accumulation yep. is fantastic yeah so assuming that you, you've got a beer that's that's failed sensory for want of a better term um, let's mm -hmm. assume it's not a glaring fault that it's not an obvious defect how does sensory talk to manufacturing depending on the fault obviously you can sort of um, do a you know analysis of where that fault might be coming from and determine go back so sometimes it could be as simple as understanding whether it's an influence of the raw materials or the process or the packaging so you know let's pick oxidize obviously you could pick that up um, and there's other things that you could do to determine that same pack if you put it under some heat stress or whatever would that exacerbate that oxidation if it does well you know that there could be an issue with your, your oxy levels or that root cause analysis of understanding what that fault is, which is why it's important to do um, sensory attributes alongside with, um, you know, beer knowledge or understanding your raw materials and your process, which doesn't, shouldn't always limit your panellists to being brewers. You know, always think about uh, who else, because you could have someone within a non-brewing function that, has a really, you know, fine-tuned palate. They just don't know that it's, they could direct it to beer, uh, to brewing sensory. But you could always sort of peel back. And once you understand that, it may be something that you can address through um, your process that might sort of highlight an issue um, upstream. Um, otherwise, it could be, you know, any other number of factors. Ultimately, what you get out of a sensory perception, you could analyse the buggery out of it and still once it's all integrated, <laughs> didn't want to use anything else, um, you could integrate it all into one package and that sensory perception is your, you know, final assessment that no instrument can really um, adequately provide. I think that's a really good, that's a really good summation of why, of why we do sensory. Like it, yeah. there's there's no one piece of equipment that can tell you uh, this is a pass fail for a beer. Correct. However, yeah. you know, once you've done, once you've put it through the sensory panel, and there's an overwhelming uh, result that um, you know the beer is not true to type, then you know that's that's really the answer you were chasing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Uh, what about in the situation? 
where the beer did hit all the specs, uh, hit all the numbers and still had a flavour defect, where does the, the kind of process monitoring stop and where does the sensory start? And I know it's, I've, tried, I've asked this question many times um, and it doesn't necessarily have an answer, but how do you balance those two things? Is one 70% and one's 30% or is it's not that simple? It, it, it's not that simple and it is probably one of the, I know that I've often been asked the question too, and it is a really hard one. It's sort of the integration of everything. You, you know, we're, we're working with something that's, it's a food, it's, it's uh, influenced by so many other different factors. It's not just, you know, the dimensions of brewing beer are quite broad. So everything, it's like making, um, you know, a bolognese or it's like making a food that you've made hundreds of times before, but this one time you just like, eh, it's a little bit different to the last time we had it. Why was it? Use the same process, use the same methodology and whatever. And it's it's that integration sometimes that whatever, it, to fine tune it down to, or to specify it down to one factor that's sort of throwing the balance off a little, um, but it could also be an interpretation of your panel too. So you could be having, you know, the time of day that you taste it, the environment you're in, um, the noise even, you know, like often if you're setting up a sensory um, uh, tasting, having having it being void of noise or influencing, influencing smells, interruptions and stuff like that is really important. You know, being focused and consistent in the time um, the day, the other influences that happen during that day, all of those things really do a, play a big imp, um, role in how impactful that profile is and how your tasters, yourself, whoever else it is, interprets that flavour profile. So, and that's why consistency has always got to um, come into play when you're assessing something. So, every brewer should sort of have one or two beers that they assess day in, day out. And they start to sort of identify a profile and putting that down on paper speaks volumes when you go back to it and you go, well, last time we actually tasted it, it was Friday afternoon around the bar with a few punters when those days come back, a few punters standing around and, you know, looking at those um, characteristics and then say, well, the week before we actually did it. Um, in the brewer's office, around the table, and there were no interruptions. So your perception also influences the overall perception of the beer. That's a that's a good point. It's a really good point, and I think that's that's a question I had, Tina. Was you know for guys that are just you know they haven't got big extensive labs, they haven't got a lot of money, they're craft brewers just starting out, and they want to they want to make an impact in the market, and they want to produce the best quality beers. You know, if we were to go back to basics, like how do you how do you set up a panel that, you know, is going to get you some consistent results? And I mean, I guess the questions I've got is, you know, how do you create that environment um, where you get the best out of the people that you're, uh, you know, you're putting on this panel? And, and you know, what are the things, that, you know, they can do to make sure that their palate even is in, the, is in great shape so that they're, they're ready? You know, this is something that they turn up for, um, well, in the, the day. One and thing to remember, Anthony, is frequently the panel is the only people you've got. It's not a selective yeah, process. <laughs> true. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, yeah. you know, if you've got a craft brewery, there's lots of different people involved in that process. I don't think you necessarily have to have um, all the brewers involved. I think, you know, if, you, if it's clear one of the brewers is, is not capable of, of, uh, of adding, you know, a lot of value to the panel, it may be better to have the financial controller or the accountant 
um, on that panel, um, offering offering an outsider's perspective. So, um, you know, usually you can you can group a few people together, whether they're in the brewery themselves. But you know, I guess my question coming back to it is, you know, how do you utilize people's palate, and how do they, you know, and what are some of the things that we can do to really be ready for? for a panel and get the most out of those people when they're, when they're doing that? Yeah, if I had to start from scratch, I'd, the first thing I'd look at is have you got, you know, do we have the facilities or do we have a room which we can do this um, and sort of allocating, you know, building an expectation that on uh, Monday at 11 o'clock or Tuesday at, you know, 9am or whatever, it's building an expectation of you know when within your schedule there's a time within the week that you can allocate even if it's as little as half an hour because you don't want to make it too onerous. Otherwise, that's where you start to get drop-off and people deprioritise tasting for something else that they've got to push through. So allocating a room or an environment that'll be free of, you know, influencing smells or, you know, time of the day. It could be you might not be able to do that, but it could be during um, shutdown or whatever that you go, okay, this once a month, half an hour, we're going to allocate this and this is the expectation that we'd like you all to come along to and be part of. Then the next part would be making sure that you've got the right tools and equipment. So, you know, I know a lot out of necessity people use plastic cups and stuff, but if you can avoid that and use glassware, um, having a set of glassware, having somewhere that you can set up a little station where you've got your jugs for the dosing, you've got your glasses and you've got a little fridge or something so that it's all immediate, you're not running back and forth. And I know I'm probably telling you how to, you know, the obvious or saying the obvious, but sometimes it's all of those pieces putting together that really will make things flow a lot easier. So setting up that station or setting up that area is really important. Then making sure that there are um you know, you're championing this program because we want to make sure that our products are consistent. We want your buy-in as, you know, a group of people to be able to do that. So ensuring that you can set aside a place, a time and a purpose to be able to run a sensory panel will generally sort of get that momentum and build the expectation that people know it's it becomes rhythmic and it, then the data that you get out of that really sort of comes back and you you communicate that with a panel so that they know that their input is actually making a difference. So setting it up is a really key part in not just making it an ad hoc um, situation where you're, you're tasting beers and looking at, you know, someone said that one of the punters said that the beer didn't taste as good as it did last week. Hey, let's get around the table and taste and see what we think because that won't build the consistency. So making sure that you know, your panellists come in knowing why they're there, knowing that their palates are ready. They haven't had anything, you know, it's not half an hour after lunch or um, something like that, you know, making sure the morning is generally the best bit. They may have had breakfast on the way in or have a coffee, rinse out half an hour before, you know, don't have anything half an hour beforehand and just be ready, be mindful and be ready that you know that you're you're being part of this because, it's for the better of our brands. It's better for, you know, the, the consistency. And I'm helping Anthony build a great, you know, beer profile for these beers. And it'll actually help towards, you know, our next new release, for example. You know, there, there's got to be a reason. So the room is important. Um, the equipment and the tools are important. And then obviously the overlying thing is making sure that people are committed. 
So I've made the perfect beer, Tina. It's very exciting mm-hmm. for everybody. Um, <laughs> it's inside my release uh, limits for specifications, pay for specifications. It's gone through the tasting panel uh, without any incident. Uh, it's an American-style pale ale. I'd very much like to enter it into some beer awards. First of all, what's internal specifications meet style guidelines? Where do they kind of fit with each other? And then how do I make sure I win a gold medal? And if I don't, what happens next? One thing I'd probably ask is where did, how did you come to your internal specifications? So I got a whole, so, bunch, whole bunch of American-style pale ales off the shelf, analysed them, put together. Yeah. Yep. And so your, your beer is brewed according to an American-style pale ale. Now, with style guidelines, obviously there's a bit of flex within those style guidelines, and when they land on a table, they're being assessed according to an American-style pale ale. Now, if there's something, there's opportunities in most competitions um, that will will allow the brewer to provide uh, any extra information or um, entering it into that competition. You've read through those style guidelines, you've aligned it, and you think, okay, well, the, the colour might be, I don't know, one EBC out or the bitterness might be on the high side. You won't be penalised for stuff, something that the bitterness might be on the high side. Um, generally, the, the value of having a number of different um, judges on a panel is that it is, it's uh, everyone puts in their interpretation and there's a collective uh, summary of that um, beer. But as long as it aligns to a style guideline um, within the, the broader sense, then it, there's no reason. And if, it, if it's void of faults, it's met the style um, attributes or specifics, uh, specifications and it's um, really well balanced and well integrated. There's no reason why it shouldn't get a gold medal. If you've, if you've brewed it to an American Pale Ale and you've actually put IPA on the label. That was pretty much my next question. So <laughs> obviously a lot of beer styles are a, a continuum um, and then they overlap. As you said, they're not fixed numbers. They're a range for most yeah. of the um, specifications. Um, how does that go down? Like, is that is that cheating, or it's a problem for no, marketing not, later? Or it's not cheating, but it's probably from an industry point of view that we've got to look at the whole landscape, and we've got to look at and understand as an industry, we've got to understand where palate preferences are going, where trends are going, and if we're looking at you know marketing something as an IPA because it's got a you know smack load of hoppy aroma but the bitterness is really reduced well then when when it gets to a a table um, it probably won't get a gold medal if it's not exemplary of that style so why call it an IPA if you think that the consumers will just pick up on the aroma you know what are we doing um, in as far as meeting the needs of the consumer or are we meeting the needs of you know you know part of it I'm honestly one for saying that the best way to sort of reinforce a style is to educate the public on that's the style and it's to use language that will entice them and bring them to a particular style based on, you know, a number of different um, attributes and characteristics, not just business that, you know, might sort of scare them off or be polarising. So calling something an IPA should be within the realms of an IPA. Um, calling something uh, a pale ale or a lager or a pilsner should be within the realms of that, those, those beers. And if they sort of deviate a little bit, if it's a consistent drift, that's why a lot of competitions or the industry sort of looks at the overall, what are these trends? And is it a new style or is it a deviation from that style that, you know, we're starting to see emerge? I mean, who would have thought hazy... Uh, 
and NEPAs would have been a trend, you know, 10 years ago. But it's something that sort of stands to creep in and we sort of modify and we adjust and and we look at it's a dynamic industry. It's not something you will get those, you know, the hardcore that go on. You should only be brewing to, you know, the traditional style guidelines. But, you know, we're in an environment where our tastes change constantly. Just to give a a kind of broader context for that, um, for somebody that hasn't been involved in the uh, different beer awards for extended periods, how dynamic is that? How many styles are introduced per year? How many are uh, retracted? Uh, It varies. I think in the 10 or so years that I've been judging, say for the AOBAs, it does vary um, and it'll be a consideration it just depends on the trend of the time. If we're finding that, you know, there's a certain percentage and the growth of that percentage has been consistent over a number of years, then that's when the consideration is that they'll introduce a new style or a, devi- a derivative of a particular style. Um, and it's hard to say that it's, you know, every five years we've seen a trend. Probably in the last 10 years we've seen changes to styles more so than in the previous even five years prior to that. You know, for 15, 20 years, it was lagers, 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 and a couple of American parallels that sort of, you know, broke the the, the trend or bucked the trend then. But it, it is a, a consideration over a number of different factors as to whether or not um, it's a flash in the pan or it is a consistent trend that we're seeing. I'm going to I'm going to come back around, like you know, as as brewers, you know, we love to love to win awards and. It really gives you the, it gives you the the, the the fight to go on and you get a bonus as well. Yeah, you get a bonus. <laughs> you get a bonus. It's always handy. <laughs> I, I guess my question is around, you know, when you've got an internal panel, it is a bit of a struggle sometimes in breweries to to keep a consistent panel uh, with all the transients, um, you know, the transiency of the of the industry. You know, how do you how do you get your internal panel to be, you know reasonable judges of of beer styles and you know on the other one i had was like how you know what is seller palette like i was gonna yeah yeah you know, we talk a, a bit one. about seller palette you know what's your what's your perception of seller palette and then i guess going on from that how do you get your internal panel to to really understand sort of or be reasonable judges of styles part of that is coming back to the program so it's not just spiking beers with um, different flavours to, you know, broaden your uh, awareness and, and capability of, you know, profiling a beer. Um, part of that program should be introducing different beer styles, not only within yours, but, sorry, different brands within those styles. So looking, going and, you know, getting a range of different beers and comparing them and making those notes and identifying what the differences are. I think before any judging competition, I think i hit the straps and sort of generally go and raid the bottle shops and try different styles and start to sort of get your mind around different styles because it's really hard when you're working for a brewery that will will brew a particular style of beer and you know that inside out and that's what creates cellar palate. So you're not broadening your scope of what might be outside of that realm of beers that you're tasting and you're focused on what you're what you're brewing and what you're tasting. Um, so that really limits your exposure to different nuances that might exist in another brewer's beer that sort of doesn't necessarily fall within your your awareness or your current understanding of that profile. So always, you know, looking at different beers, going out and you always want to support your own beers, but there's, there's 
you know, product research. There's, you know, scratch it down to, to researching what um, other brewers are doing and having a really good appreciation of the influences that people are putting in with the raw materials and, um, you know, packaging even or understanding uh, the influences of uh, international beers versus local and you know, looking at all of those attributes together to set, get a bigger market um, appreciation, not just a brewery, because that's part of it, but you really do have to push your, push your um, awareness to other beers and breweries to understand what's really happening within that space of a particular style. And even introducing beers that you really don't like. I'm, I've always said it, I'm not a huge fan of pumpkin ales or chili <laughs> beers, but I'll always try them because I think I just need to know, you know, for competition purposes, I need to know what a gold medal pumpkin ale is really like and I've come across a, a number of them and they are cracking beers would I sit down and have a couple of pints maybe not but um you've really got to understand what the the you know true to style characteristics are and they don't always have to come out of your own brewery so that's just so we're exposing our panelists to to everything that's available rather than just what's coming out of your brewery absolutely yep. absolutely and the other thing too is just, and I thought about it before, but didn't get a chance, to, didn't think to say it. Um, part of the, you know, a simple thing to sort of uh, include in in any sensory, along with your own products, is putting beer in the boot of someone's car, leaving it in there, you know, for a period of time, or putting it in a shed. It's stressing stressing your beers um, is really important to to understand how bad they can get over a course of time period of time and and through a course of different environments because if you get feedback from a judging competition that it was either oxidized or a bit stale or whatever stress it to see am I picking up I'm tasting my beers fresh they go out to market and then you know I really need to understand what's happening in that uh, stressed environment is a really easy thing to do you know stick them out in the sunlight I'm sure most people do it but sometimes you might not do it often enough Funnily enough, that's one of the things that at my beer tasting just uh, lunches, whenever anyone complains about brewed under licence imported beers or you know, international beers, uh, I always tell them to go down to their local bottle shop and buy two bottles, put one in the fridge and one behind the fridge. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and get your partner to serve it up blind you know, in four weeks' time and see you know, why um, sending a beer across the equator in a shipping container may not be the best idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I do that with my kids often just to re- – and my kids, I'll clarify, are all adults. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I often sort of sometimes I'll just go, well, smell that or, you know, try that. That's what you shouldn't be, you know, watch out for this. It's light stroke or it's, yeah. Do they roll their eyes? No, I think they're quite <laughs> used to it now. <laughs> they even swirl their glass. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, it's just uh, training, training from uh, yeah, hopefully not at too young an age. No, no, God, no. The youngest is 19. So. <laughs> well, Tina, thanks very much for giving us this very, very broad overview of Century. And I'm sure we'll get you back on to dig a little deeper into some of the um, topics we've covered. But thank you so much for, for your time in uh, you know, discussing all things Century. And uh, it's a shame that we won't get to join you for a beer at uh, BrewCon. Um, absolutely. And, and the indie absolutely. judging. Yeah, it's a shame. The times we live in. But thank you so much, gentlemen. It's been a really great um, 
time this morning to having a chat. I really love it. As you can tell, I can talk about beer <laughs> no, and sensory. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Tina. We really appreciate your time and, and your thoughts are always welcome. Uh, yeah, you've, you've been doing this a long time and uh, I really, I always enjoy listening to you. So thank you. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks, Have thanks, a good Tina. day. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Tina Panutzis. If you would like to comment on this discussion, you can join our Brewery Pro Facebook group to discuss the podcast, connect with others within the industry, or to suggest topics you would like to hear an expert brewer's perspective on. To join the group, just search for RBN Brewery Pro in Facebook. We thank HPA for their support in making this episode and a lot of good beer possible. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show. There's a link in the show notes. Reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, that really does help others to find this valuable content as well. Or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts and interests. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another Brewer's Perspective.